This morning, you have an opportunity to hear from a, a great guest speaker. I'm very excited that he's here, here with us. Seth, Seth Trout is a friend of mine. He is the executive pastor at Redemption Gateway, which is our neighbor to the southeast. Uh, Seth is part of the theological team that oversees some of the conversations about these cultural issues that help us to think through them. Seth also just completed his doctorate at Covenant Theological Seminary, which means he pretty smart. So uh, why don't you welcome Seth this morning? Thanks, Jeremy. Good morning, everyone. Good to see most of you. Uh, thanks for having me uh, at your church this morning. It's a real treasure to get to be here. Uh, you know, I've, I think I came to Remption Gilbert once on a Sunday at an 8 o'clock service like five years ago. And so I probably saw not many of you there because it was 8 o'clock service and you're the 1045 people. You know, you're all hitting the snooze for the 30th time at that time. I'm, I'm preaching this text this morning out of John 13. And if I'm honest, like when I first read this text, it was like kind of like... Uh, a little bit vanilla ice cream to me, you know, a little boring. Uh, it's one of those, it's just really obvious. Love your neighbor, love one another. And it's like, duh. Why do you need to spend 35 minutes unpacking that? It feels like pretty obvious. It's like one of those commands that it's like, we all understand it. We don't do it. See you next week. <laughs> that's, a, that's kind of what it feels like. But it's like obvious stuff. So I've been thinking about obvious things that we say all the time. You know, the other week I was, or maybe just two nights ago I was at friend's house and I was leaving and they told me to drive safe and I was thinking well I was going to drive recklessly but now you told me to drive safe now I'll drive safe or and then you're driving home and you see these bumper stickers you know they say baby on board and I was like well I was going to wreck your car now there's baby on board now I'm going to not wreck your car so I'll just chill out on wrecking your car there these obvious things we say all the time that we feel like we need to say keep saying one of the ones that's obvious that needs to be said is I see a sticker that say dog mom on it and to me, it's just obvious that unless you're a dog, you're not a dog mom. That's not how it works. I do, there's like biology 101. Uh, you can only be a mom of your species. That's just so you know. But it's obvious. But so, sometimes you've got to say it. People forget. You've got to say the obvious things. And this text is obvious. Well, it's obvious to us. Right? If you grew up in Western culture, if you grew up in the United States, you generally have a favorable view of love. If you went and talked to 100 people on the street and said, for or against love, people are going to always say, Mostly for love, unless like their girlfriend broke up with them yesterday, you know, then like against love, you know, and that's, you know, I'm going to dye my hair black and listen to sad songs. That's against love. Love is bad. But everyone has a pretty high view of love, and that's, it's kind of a new thing. Even like the Beatles, you know, all you need is love. They're saying that while they're saying, telling the world they're more popular than Jesus, while at the same time they're ripping off Jesus. You know, this, this thing we take for granted. Some of you have signs in your yard. Maybe your neighbors have signs in the yard, and the sign says something like this, um, Black Lives Matter. Uh, science is real. Love is love. And you're like, oh, what does that mean? You know, uh, is that what Jesus means when he says love one another? Uh, love is all you need. Love is love. You know, if you, at least when I was in college, every, basically every sorority girl had a tote bag that said live, laugh, love. You know, it, it was just, it could have just replaced that with good vibes always. That's what it meant. It didn't, like, so everyone's high on the word love. The question is, is are we in agreement with Jesus on what the word love means? That's a sticking point here, is who defines love? Is love just kind of being nice, making sure nobody has any bad feelings? You can't be loving if you create a bad feeling in someone or help contribute to a bad feeling in someone. Um, is love just doing what other people want all the time? Is that what love is? 
Um, in this text, we're going to see three things about love that I want us to kind of just sit with and let stir in our hearts as Redemption Church about what love is. And the first one is that um, love serves. The second one is that love speaks. And the third one is that love substitutes. And so let me pray, and then we're going to jump into love serves. All right, let me pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray that we will submit to it and we will understand it. Amen. Amen. So this idea of love serving, this is when Jesus says, I have a new command for you. Now, if you've read the Old Testament, this, is not, this doesn't feel initially like a new command. He says, a new commandment I give to you, verse 34, that you love one another. So that part's not new. Here's the part that's new. As I have loved you. Jesus is not the guy who comes with this impression in churches and in culture where like Jesus is like, oh yeah, there's this law in the Old Testament and it's hard and bad and Jesus comes and lowers the standard for everyone so everyone can jump over it on their own. That's not what happens. Jesus comes to earth and he goes, hey, you've heard love one another, great, but you're gonna love one another as I have loved you. That all of us should be here, like kind of basically hear the command like, love one another, okay, sounds good. As I've loved you, hold on, I don't, I don't, that sounds like a lot. Especially because in context, the main thing that Jesus is referring to right here is the fact that he just spent time, three years, investing in, sharing meals with, training, discipling, connecting, being vulnerable to, spending quality time with, giving up his nights and weekends for, and then eventually washing the feet of Judas. And what happens in this text that kind of triggers this kind of final big address of Jesus is actually verse 30. And so Judas has just ran out. So we're in the middle of the book of John and chapters 1 through 12 are basically all about Jesus doing these key seven signs, proving that he's God and illustrating what new creation is going to look like when it pushes back on the curse as far as it's found in the heavens and the earth. And so what happens is from the beginning, the disciples have been saying, when are you going to be glorified? When is the next thing going to happen? When are we going to take over Rome? When are we going to no longer be oppressed as the Jewish people? When are we going to actually bring to fruition the thing that you're talking about? And they're going, when, 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 when? And what we get in verse 30 is Judas walks out of the room. All the disciples see him leave. It's super awkward because he goes, one of you are going to betray me. And then Judas leaves. And they're like, well, I wonder who it is. You know, and Judas is like gone. And they're like, these people have spent three plus years with this guy sharing meals and tables and probably like sleeping space floors. Judas is out. Jesus turns to the group. And at the way that Ferdinand's 30 ends is, and it was night. This is the part in the movie where the music changes. It's been, you know that first part of the movie when you're seeing a movie that you know is going to be like intense or scary? And I just get anxiety the whole first bit, like until the bad stuff starts happening. Because it's like, oh, we're all friends. We're all happy. Everything's going good. And you're like, when does the plot start? Because this like pretending everything is fine thing before the real part of the movie starts feels like it's just leading me on and I can't handle it. So we just need to skip forward to the part where the bad thing happens. This is the and it was night music change. And it's basically what Jesus says is, um, now when he'd gone out, Judas had gone out, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is is glorified. He's saying this is like the domino has been flicked. What needs to be put in motion has been put in motion. This is the time. He just had spent time washing the feet of these people and now that Judas is out, now is the time. But one last thing before I go. What you just saw me do, do that. Love serves. Do we do that? 
Again, this is an easy command to memorize. You could probably get your two-year-old to memorize it, maybe two-and-a-half-year-old. But we both basically spend our whole lives disobeying this verse. Wash Judas' feet. Some of you have an obvious Judas in your life. Maybe you know they're going to betray you. Maybe you're expecting to betray you. We tend to callous up and harden ourselves. Why do we do that? Partly because we tend to use service as just subtle form of manipulation. Right? Christians do this all the time. You know, my house was kind of a mess. My wife's serving at the student camp thing we have going on. My kid threw his toys all over the place. I'm like, I'm going to serve my wife, clean these toys up. But really, I'm thinking, I am going to make sure my wife's not mad at me later. I'm going to clean these up. So who am I serving when I clean up the toys? Myself. Low-grade manipulation. Who am I? So we we serve, especially Christians, we don't want to be servants. We want to look like servants. We want to be seen as servants. Tom, who helped plant this church, he used to say, everyone likes the idea of being a servant until they're treated like one. Not a great time. One of the key things that we see in this text about serving is that it's actually the powerful person who's serving the less powerful person. That's why it's so radical and significant, is Jesus is using his position and his power to serve the people who don't even deserve to be served. This is not God saying, serve me, wash my feet. This is God saying, let me wash your feet. So one of the key questions we have when we talk about serving is not, who do I think should be serving me better? That's language of entitlement. It's incompatible with gratitude, incompatible with Christianity. Rather, we're asking, how can I use what I have, whether it's my, my capital, my position, my power, my authority, my influence, how can I use what I have to serve other people, lift them up, and help them flourish? You know, I was, uh, the other day we were at this thing at my church, and my son's one and a half, or kind of, know, he's 21 months, for those of you who care about that details of stuff. And he was, there's like this kind of like mentor volunteer thing with like Nutrigrain bars, which by the way, are the biggest lie in the history of the planet. Like nothing is more false advertising than Nutrigrain because it's like, they put the word Nutra in it so you think it's nutritious. Really it's just caloric, you know, but it's, it's just a Pop-Tart in a different package, right? And so, oh, Nutrigrain, this is healthy. And there's a picture of a strawberry, so this is great. And so he brings me a Nutrigrain bar. He says, bar, can you open? He says, open, and I open it for him. And then he throws the trash on the ground. I say, Jay, take your trash, throw it in the trash can. He picks it up, throws it in the trash can. I feel good and proud. There's other people around. I'm like, yes, thank you. I'm parented. <laughs> I have been parenting my child. Yeah. Then he goes and gets another one, comes back. And it's kind of like I take a bite, he takes a bite thing. And then he gives me little oranges, and he gets this... And after each thing he does, I peel the orange. I say, Jay, no, throw that orange and be held in the trash. He goes and throws it in the trash. Then he comes back, and again, I'm eating this stuff too. So we're both eating the stuff, but um, I'm dad. And so he throws away the Nutrigrain bar, he throws away an orange wrapper, throws away another Nutrigrain bar. Then we open up a second orange, and we have this pile of stuff. It's like, okay, Jay, that's my son's name, go throw away that trash. And he looks at me and says, no, dad's turned trash. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, there's people around. Come on. We were doing, we had three in a row. Should have stopped where we were ahead on. So I was like, you know, that is right. It is my turn. You're right. <laughs> he has a fair point, right? I, uh, I don't want to just be having a son so he can just do my chores for me. But I was thinking, but I, my mind came to this text and thinking about how you know, so often like we think about parenting is like you're you're in charge and you your kids do what you want but like serving like christ is going how can i use my position in order to serve now i'm not saying 
don't take away all your kids' opportunity to be responsible and be servants, and I'm not saying that. But I was like, I felt confronted by that text because at first I was like, first of all, obey me, you know. Second of all, how dare you embarrass me in front of all these seventh grade girls, you know. And <laughs> I was like, you know, good point. And I took the trash and I threw it away. And, but that, that kind of like that heart thing that we were going like, I'm in charge here. I can imagine Jesus playing the I'm in charge here card when like someone's got to wash people's feet and Jesus goes like, well, we know it's not going to be me. Nose goes, you know, and but Jesus takes it. He serves. He serves Judas. We don't, even, we don't even serve our loved ones like that. Jesus serves Judas like that. We're afraid of serving Judas because serving Judas always equals more pain for you in the end. You can't be pain avoidant and be a Christ follower, period. It's not how it works. Love one another as I have loved you includes washing the feet of Jesus. You know, we have this ministry fair going on. And I just want to say, some of you serve like crazy. You take responsibility. Some of you haven't felt called to serve in like 10 years. Feel called to serve. Sometimes we serve to, to, to create joy in other people. Sometimes we serve as a spiritual discipline. Sometimes you have to serve in a way, like every now and then I do counseling, I meet with folks who are trying to figure out God's will for them to serve. And there's a time and a place to serve in line with your talent and passion, right? Like we don't want anyone on the, in the band who's not serving in line with their talent, right? That's like, it's not good, you know? But there's also time like when you gotta serve in a way that's like helps you feel like a servant. Especially like if you're like captain CEO of whatever thing that you do, you, finding a place where you're not in charge and you're being told what to do and you just serve is really healthy for us. The more money you get, the more success you have, Leveraging that for others is key, but also sometimes you need to serve in a way where uh, nobody's impressed with you. You don't get any applause. Not necessarily because others need it, but sometimes because you need it. Love serves, and it serves Judas. Next thing we see in this text is that love speaks. This is one of the main things here that I think really kind of hits me in this text is this... uh, Peter thinking he's something and Jesus helping Peter see you're not something. Jesus looks at Peter and says, you are not who you think you are. This is part of the love of Christ. Call it not shaming honesty, but sobering honesty. Jesus tells Peter, or Peter says, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterwards. Peter goes, whoa, 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 Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus looks at him and says, will you? Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, meaning like, get this straight. Listen up. You won't even follow me for 24 hours before you deny me three times saying, take your view of your faith, take your view of your self-confidence, take your view of your ability to be a resilient, uh, a gritty follower of me and take it down a few notches. You're impressed with you, I'm not impressed with you. You think you're something that you're not. Cuts them off at the knees. 
Does Peter get it in the moment? We don't know. But by the time he denies him three times in the morning, Peter gets it. This is love, looking someone who you know. So Jesus knows Peter. He's seen him operate. He knows Peter's like the, I'll do anything. And it's like, meh. Some of you made promises like that. Lord, that was the last time. Next month, I'll give sacrificially. Next year, you know, this time will be different. I'll, I'll prioritize the right things. I'll stop working so much. I'll stop being so lazy. What, we, we make promises to the Lord. And he looks at us and says, will you? He's not doing this to shame us, to make us hate ourselves. He's doing this to sober us. Because you can't live soberly until you live in reality. And Jesus is inviting Peter to live in reality. Hey, man, you're not who you think you are. I had a seminary professor. It was my first year in seminary at Phoenix Seminary. A guy named Fred Shea. Then he went to seminary in like the 80s, 90s, or until about 2013 when he moved on. You might have had Fred Shea at Phoenix Seminary. But I was of the opinion that I was a gift to Phoenix Seminary. These people are lucky that I'm here. I participated a ton in class. Like a lot, a lot. I did all the reading, I got engaged, said a bunch of stuff, offered to do things. I was like the, I know all this stuff, but I just have to jump to the seminary hoop so that people will think I know this stuff. That was my view. And so about like week 12, 13, Fred, Professor Fred, Dr. Shea had kind of like gotten to know me enough that, you know, at, at about like the 12th week, he goes, hey, Seth, see me after class. I'm going to talk to you real quick. I'm thinking like, here comes my moment. You know, he's going to say, Seth, you're a real gift to the church. You're super smart and great, and we're so glad to have you here. And thanks for paying tuition. You make the seminary better. And your participation in class serves everybody, and it's just a real treat to have you in class stay the course. That's what I'm expecting him to say. You know? and, and he says, all right, Seth, some people have a lot to say, and some people just say a lot. You're the second one. And then he walked away. <laughs> and I was like, whoa, that did not go like I thought it was going to go. And I went to him the next week, and I was like, hey, Dr. Shea, um, it seemed like you were implying last week that I kind of just run my mouth without a lot of substance. And he says, oh, I was not implying that. I was just saying that. I... <laughs> he said, you have a lot of work to do. And stop pretending like you've done a lot of work. And it was one of those, you're not who you think you are. Down a rung, down another rung, down another rung. And that was loving. He created tons of bad feelings in me. It was not a safe space. How could I learn in that hostile environment? <laughs> but he was loving me when he told me I was not who I thought I was. And if sometimes we think that being loving means maintaining everybody's sense of fake peace, don't rock the boat, don't say the hard thing, don't tell anybody you're not who you think you are. And I just got to say, like, we, 
Some of you, the radical, loving, Christ-like thing you will do this week or this year is by scheduling a meeting with someone, looking them in the eye, not sending them some kind of passive-aggressive text and hoping they get the point, but looking in the eye and saying, hey, I've known you a while now, and because we're brothers or sisters in Christ, you are not who you think you are. Some of you will be on the receiving end of one of those conversations. And you'll probably react like Peter does initially. Whoa, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay my life down for you, Lord. Our initial offense, attempt to react defensively, it's because it's scary to be told you're not who you think you are because we feel unstable, we feel attacked, we feel violated. But this is part of love. It's telling the truth. The church is really great about talking about Windows. What I mean by that is, imagine there's a big, huge window on the church, and the world was out there through the window, and we're in here in the church. And we all gather around and go like, yeah, the people outside that window, bad. And we go, yeah, people outside that window, bad. But one of the things we need to get better at as a church is to close the window and get out a mirror and say, people in here, the preacher, all of us, bad. It's so easy to talk about people out the window, but it's, easy, it's really hard to talk about me and you across the table dealing with reality. Love speaks. That if we don't think that love sometimes create ten, creates tension in other people to the point of hostility, now we want to be kind, but we can't be overly concerned about making sure everyone feels good all the time. Jesus regularly offends people, not for the sake of offending people, but for the sake of helping them. This is not to shame them, it's to sober them. Love speaks. Next thing we see here is that love is a substitute. This is like probably the, probably the center point of this text. And so read with me starting in verse uh, 31. There's a key word here that's pretty obvious. You'll probably get it. When he had gone out, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. He's saying, you've been asking to see glory. Here comes glory. Now, glory is one of those words, I grew up in the church, maybe some of you did, maybe some of you didn't, but it just feels so churchy religious. Glory, you know, and people will like, uh, be like gossiping like about their friends, and then they'll like say, oh, I just care about them like glorifying God, you know, and it's like the way of like saying something, or people will be bragging about themselves, like I'm awesome, I'm into the glory of God, you know, and it's like this get out of jail free card about doing or saying dumb stuff, and you say, well, if I say to the glory of God at the end of it, then it's not, then I kind of am off the hook on what I said. I have a friend who makes a bunch of money doing what I consider immoral things, and, you know, he'll post like hashtag to the glory of God made a million dollars this month, and I'm like, that's not how it works. You don't just, it's not, it's not like you tag it on at the end, and now you get to do what you want. That's not how glory works, but uh, think about, I was uh, preaching at this camp a couple years ago, and it was a high school camp, and there was this, uh, you know, I kind of walk around and talk to the campers, ended up having this conversation with this high school girl, and about like 40 seconds in the conversation, I remember thinking, like, this girl feels like she's like 17 going on 36 as far as like emotional health, weight of her 
ability to process difficult life things. She's talking about her relationship with her dad. She has great like internal vocabulary. She's emotionally solid. She has great theology. Um, she's pretty, like the psychologists call it, differentiated, meaning uh, she's able to see herself as a distinct person away from like the drama of the, what is typically high school. And she's listening, connected, but she's not like swept up into the fray of typical high school garbage. And I'm kind of just thinking like, oh, this lady seems pretty great. I bet her dad's awesome. Like that's, and she's talking to me about her dad and I'm saying her dad's awesome. Then she starts dropping a couple like things about her dad and what he does and um, the difficulties of some of these things. And about 15 minutes of this conversation, I realized that she's the daughter of this celebrity that I admire. Like a good celebrity, not like the famous for being famous celebrities, but like ones who like do stuff. And so then I'm hearing her talk and I'm like, this is so-and-so's daughter. And I start having to talk to myself, stay calm. She's 17 and you're 28 or whatever it was a couple handful of years ago. Stay calm, don't be weird, you know, don't be weird. You know, and like, but all of a sudden, like once I knew who she was, there's like this gravity of, uh, hey, can I have your autograph? You know, I'm like talking to her about like her life struggles and all of a sudden I found out who her dad is and I'm like, oh my gosh, like this, like, you know, um, what do you, what's your family doing later? You know, do you want to debrief camp sometime? You know, this would be great. Can I come to your house? And, and so I'm just thinking like, keep treating her like a person, but I haven't like talked myself into this because like the weight of the celebrity is affecting like even my emotional state in a way that I'm like not trying to make it happen. And so, but that's what the word glory really means. It's like celebrity. It's like weight of presence. It'd be like if, you know, LeBron James walks in the door. Even if you don't, like, think he's better than Jordan or whatever, you'd be like, oh, what's this guy doing here? This is kind of cool. Everyone, like, and there'd be, like, murmuring, right? Like, partially because he's, like, 6'9", and people would just notice him. But partially because they're like, oh, this is, like, what's he doing in Gilbert? You know what, this is kind of interesting. And then there'd be chatter and people would talk about church, house church. Oh, it was pretty great. They had this speaker who was whatever, but LeBron was there. And it was just like, it was, so like there'd be like this overshadowing thing of, that's glory. The word glory most basically means weight or heaviness. And it's meant to give this picture of, of, of like gravitational attraction. It's, it's celebrity, it's kingship. And so they're asking Jesus to be glorified, meaning they want him to take on the title of king, take over. You know, when uh, my brother joined the Marines in 2010, um, until then he always called the president Barack, or he called the president Obama. But after he went through boot camp as a Marine, he came out and he was talking about the honorable president Obama. And all of a sudden, his language went from kind of disrespectful or casual to all of a sudden formal, respectful, because in the Marine, in the boot camp, like you refer to, you respect the office. That was kind of, kind of the deal. And all of a sudden, the, the name went from just being a name to being a glorious name like a name that had weight because of the presence and the position and the influence and the power. And so he went, just that, that language change went from giving glory to just being a person. And that's the way that kind of the office functions. And this is what the disciples are saying. It's like, yeah, you're Jesus. When are you going to be King Jesus? When are you going to be glorified? When are you going to be uh, enthroned? When are you going to be crowned? And Jesus is saying, right now. Right now I'm going to be crowned. 
This is going back to John chapter 3 when Jesus tells the disciples, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so also must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's going, this is the time. I'm about to be enthroned. I'm about to be given a crown. I'm about to be given a robe. And I'm about to be lifted up and seen for who I am. And they still don't get that he's talking about being crucified, that his crown will be a crown of thorns, that his robe will be given to him in irony, that people will mock him and calling him the king of the Jews, and his greatest moment of glory will his be dying for you. People talk about the legacy of celebrities. What do they do to get famous? What Jesus chooses to do to enshrine and finally uh, solidify his lordship over all of creation was to die for it. Love one another as I have loved you. Follow me into death. You want to reign, Christians talk about reigning with Christ in the heavenly places. You want to reign with Christ? You receive a crown of thorns. You want to reign with Jesus? You want to follow Jesus? You want to love like him? It's being misunderstood. It's being mocked. This is scary stuff. All of a sudden, this text that feels obvious, love one another. Okay, got it. As I have loved you. Talking about serving Judas and dying for Peter. That's scary stuff. And then what's crazy is we sign up to follow Jesus, and then we suffer like him, and then we're like mad about it. God, this isn't what I signed up for. I thought you were good. And he's going, I literally told you what would happen if you followed me. Betrayal from a close friend, being misunderstood, being mocked, being tossed aside, being unrecognized for who you are. Do you really want to follow that guy? This is not serving as a way of bettering yourself, serving as a way of self-branding, self-marketing. It looks good on a resume to have social service hours, community service hours. This is suffering in a, serving in a way that nobody sees, nobody cares. But most basically, this is loving in a way that's saying, one of us has to suffer and I'll let it be me. That's substitutionary love. There is X number of pain that has to happen and it's you or me and love is saying, it's me. I'll do it. We don't want that. I'm trying to teach my son to swim so we go to the pool and, you know, which is like swim diapers, man, overpromise, underdeliver on the swim diapers, I got to say. But he'll stand inside the pool and he'll say, jump to daddy. And for a while, we're just trying to get him not to be afraid of the water. So it's like, yeah. And you kind of do this and he kicks and splashes and, you know, it would not go well for him if he didn't uh, have us around right now. He's not a swimmer. But what's happened lately is we're trying to teach him to take a breath, hold a breath. And then so we'll say one, two, three, big breath. And we dunk him under and bring him up. And he's mostly like traumatized by, you know. And, uh, but lately what happens is he'll stand on the edge and we'll say, jump to daddy. And he'll say, jump to daddy. No under. No under. I'll say, no, we're going to go under. We're going to go under. Jump to daddy. And he'll go, mm, 
no under. And he'll just walk away and go do something else. And he'll like throw rocks at the brick wall or something. He's like, this is more fun than doing that. And so, uh, but every now and then he like gets the courage and he decides that I'm not going to drown him and he trusts me. And he comes back and he goes, jump to daddy. I go, yeah. And he goes, no under. And I say, going under. And he goes, okay, under. And then he jumps and I catch him and we go under and he kicks and he goes. And I feel like that's what a lot of us are like with the father. I'm not jumping in your arms if you're going to take me under. Jump to the Father, no death for me. Jump to the Father, no under. So a lot of us think that we've jumped in the arms of the Father because we've stuck a foot into the pool. Like, yeah, Christian, I'm in the water, I'm in. But until we trust the Father to take us into death and on his own timing bring resurrection, we have not really given ourselves to the Father. If you're a follower of Jesus or if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, a key question we have to wrestle with is, will I trust him to take me into death that is Christ-like love and service? Because one thing to say, I trust him to not send me to hell because of the blood of Jesus. It's another thing to say, do I trust him to guide me into death? And when I'm in that death, it will feel like death. It will not feel like, man, serving's fun. It'll feel like, oh, I'm having fellowship with Christ in the sufferings. And sometimes that death lasts three days. Sometimes that death lasts 20 minutes. Sometimes that death won't be undone until Christ comes back and makes all things new. But this is the beauty of God Most High, is that we can follow him, and he will take us into death, and he will eventually bring resurrection. And this is why when he tells Peter, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterwards. He's telling Peter, you don't have what it takes right now to follow me into death. But when you witness my resurrection, when you're full of my spirit, you will all of a sudden have what it takes to follow me into death. That Jesus is telling us you're not who you are is not meant to shame us and say, well, this guess is the way I am. I don't, it does not any better than this for me. This is just what I'm capable of. He's saying, no, that's what you're capable of by yourself, apart from my spirit, prior to you witnessing my resurrection. That if you have the spirit of Christ in you, you are capable of following Christ into death. The question is, are you willing? And so some of you have failed to again and again and again, including myself, to really follow Christ into death. And he's saying, you cannot follow me now, but you will be able to. Some of you need to hear right now that by the power of the Spirit of God, you are capable of following Christ into death, period. So stop being afraid to do it. We as a whole church, those born of the Spirit, have the capacity, not of ourselves, but of God, to really be the hands and feet of Jesus to our neighbors. The question just is, do we want to? We've gone from incapable to unwilling a lot of the times. That's what we need to repent of. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your church. Thank you for your word. I do ask that you would help us get a vision for who the Judases are in our life that we need to serve, who the Peters are in our life that we need to tell the truth to, and who the people are that we can absorb pain on their behalf so that they might flourish. God, help us as Redemption Church be a people who love well 
um, and who love in all the hard ways, both in word and in deed. Amen.